chapter 6. Now, in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, that's interesting. Chapter 2, verse 47, it said that the Lord was adding to his church, and now he's multiplying the disciples. And in between those two, he subtracted, okay? He subtracted Ananias and Sapphira and kept from joining the church anyone who was not really committed after they saw how God dealt with their hypocrisy, the uh, hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira, how God really, literally just took their lives uh, because of their hypocrisy and all. And when that happened, great fear came upon the church. They realized that God was a good God, but he was a holy and a righteous God. And if they were considering playing fast and loose with sin, they better think twice. Because God was bound and determined to keep his church pure, especially at the beginning here. And so after God subtracting Ananias and Sapphira from the church, now God is multiplying disciples. And uh, during this time when God was multiplying disciples, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Here we go again now. Here we see another conflict arise that has the potential to tear this, tear this young church apart, really. The church had begun a welfare program. In those days, of course, the, the state didn't take care of people that were poor and indigent. It fell on the families or, uh, in this uh, case, on the church. And these were widows. And widows that apparently had no family because Paul, in writing to Timothy, said, look, uh, the church is not to take into its number widows to support them if they've got family. The family needs to take care of their mother or their aunt or whoever it is because that's, what, that's godliness. You don't expect the church to take care of somebody that belongs to your family. Those who will not take care of their own family are worse than infidels or unbelievers, Paul said. But if a woman is truly a widow and has nobody else to support her, you're only then to take her into the church and supply her needs if she is faithful and serving in the church, serving the body of Christ. If she's out busybody, gossiping, then no, you're not to do that. So they had guidelines that they had uh, adhered to. But they were taking care of these widows who had no means of support. And so every day the widows would come to the apostles to get their daily ration. Well, a dispute arose. The Hellenists believed that the Hebrews were getting favored treatment. Well, what is all this? First of all, the Hebrews there are Jewish widows that lived in Israel. The Hebrews is just another way of saying Jews that were committed to Judaism and committed to the Jewish traditional way of life. The Hellenist Jews were Jews that were born, probably grew up outside of Israel in the Roman Empire, had moved back to or had moved to Israel and they were called Hellenists because they had embraced the uh, Greek culture. Remember now, the Romans dominated the world, but before the Roman Empire was the Greek Empire. And Alexander the Great loved the Greek culture so much, it was his passion to see it spread throughout his whole empire. Well, he did such a great job at that, even after Rome took over, the Hellenist you know, influence was still very strong uh, in the Roman Empire. And many Jews that grew up you know, outside of Israel had embraced this way of life, this Hellenist way of life. That's why they were called 
Hellenist Jews. They were those that had adopted or embraced the Greek culture. Now, the Hebrews, the traditionalists in Israel, looked at these Hellenistic Jews as worldly, carnal, sellouts to the Greek culture, you know, to the world. And they looked at the Hebrews there, or those that were committed to the Jewish way of life in Judaism, as, you know, the holier-than-thou, self-righteous kind of a, a fundamentalist. So you have your fight with the liberals and the conservatives, even back then. And so I don't think the apostles were purposely trying to slight anybody. I honestly think, and I believe that because of the way they handled the conflict, but I honestly think they, they, the church by this time was about 30,000 people or more. It was just too much of a job. They were trying to do everything. They couldn't do everything, right? It was like Moses when he was trying to, to, to do everything, and, and, and he was the, the Supreme Court of Israel, and everybody came to him. And Jethro's father-in-law said, you know, from early morning to late at night, Moses was hearing disputes, you know, from different people. And Jethro, his father, was, this is not good what you're doing. You're going to get burned out. He said, appoint men to help you in this matter. And so Moses appointed 70 elders to kind of bear the load. In all the really hard cases, Jethro said, you can listen to and you can judge. But spread the work around. Uh, D.L. Moody said, I would rather get 10 men to do the work than to try to do the work of 10 men. It's a good philosophy. It's a good way to look at it. And so the apostles were just spreading themselves too thin. And so this conflict arose, and Satan just jumped right on it. And it had the potential of tearing the early church apart. Favoritism, you know. The apostles, they're from Israel. And it was perceived by Jews outside of Israel that they were favoring their own. And I, I don't think it was on purpose. Uh, then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now, don't misunderstand what they're saying. They are not saying that this ministry to the widows was unimportant. It certainly was important. But it wasn't a ministry the apostles had to personally oversee. And that's what they're saying. They're saying, look, we have been called as leaders in the church to spend time in the word, to teach the word of God to God's people. The widows, that's important. We want to take care of them, but we don't have to oversee that personally because it's taking us away from our primary calling. God blessed them if they understood what their calling was and they wanted to focus on that because too many pastors today have neglected the Word of God to serve tables. And by that I mean they're, they're in, heavily involved in all kinds of social programs that are decent programs. I'm not saying they're, they're, they're not important programs. But any kind of social program that clothes people or feeds people is important. But you can feed the stomach. The stomach is going to hunger again. The greatest need that a person has is to be fed, fed the word of God. And so it's very important that, you know, as, as leaders in the church, as teachers, pastors, that we give ourselves over to the teaching of the word, which means we spend the time to study the word, we spend the time to pray over our studies, then to be a channel through which God might use to feed the sheep. Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep. That's the calling of a shepherd, is to feed the flock of God, the word of God. Healthy sheep reproduce. Healthy sheep, 
you know, don't get drawn into all kinds of carnal conflicts a lot. When a man leaves the teaching of the word to run around counseling and everything else, well, the sheep don't get fed. So there's going to be more problems, more of a need to counsel. And it's a trap. I believe it's a trap of the enemy. When pastors get so caught up in counseling that they are taken away from the teaching of the word. First of all, I have found as a pastor over many years, if you faithfully feed your people the whole counsel of God, they won't have to come to you so much and, and have special counsel because they'll be learning and growing as the word of God is taught. So it's a very important thing. And Satan tried to get these apostles so busy up front that they were taking them away from the teaching of the word and that was going to create more problems. Satan knew it. And so the apostles rightly said, look, we're sorry if this is happening. We don't mean to slight anybody. We're not trying to favor the, 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 the widows from Israel uh, over the other widows from outside of Israel. We're, we're not trying to do that. But it's not right that we should leave the word of God to serve tables. So therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Now, I like that. They humbled themselves. They, they weren't on a, a pride trip. That's why God was able to work this out quickly and to everyone's satisfaction. The, the apostles, you know, if they were uh, arrogant, proud men, could have said, hey, we're in charge. We'll do what we want to do, kind of a thing, as some leaders do. But they said, no, no, we, we're not trying to do this. So, look... You pick out from among yourselves, okay, seven men. Why seven? Well, in the Bible, that's the number of completeness. There's a lot of times the number seven appears in the Bible. But from a practical standpoint, I think that one man for every day of the week. One man to oversee each of the days of the week because they all worked. I mean, this was a, you know, the church didn't have paid staff at this point. The apostles may have been receiving something to, to survive from the church as they taught the word but everybody else was basically uh, serving beside working their own jobs and so one man for each of the seven days of the week to oversee this ministry and notice the qualifications men of good reputation full of the spirit and of wisdom notice those are all internal qualities character i knew a church one time or a pastor i think he's still in ministry who chose his leaders based on how successful they were in the business world. And what a disaster that was. Because success in the business world does not mean a man will be a good spiritual leader. Sometimes it's just the opposite. They also didn't pick men based on their appearance, how handsome they were, like Israel did with Saul. Why did they choose Saul to be the first king? He was taller than everybody else, and he was good-looking. Oh, well, great qualifications there, right? How do we miss that? And Saul was a disaster. And God shows the man then after his own heart. Just a little boy at first, to just when God first called David. But it was the heart. God looks upon the heart, God said. Important qualifications. In fact, we would look at the job that they were going to do and say, well, gee, it wasn't exactly a, a very... Um, Boy, sensitive ministry where you you know you had to have the just the really spiritual people involved, but they didn't see it that way. Apparently, they figured they felt that any ministry in the church should be led by spirit-filled people of good character and reputation. 
They didn't just say, setting up chairs on Sunday morning. We don't. We we can have anybody do that. Or or you know doing this or that. That's that's not important. You take get anybody. No, they felt like no no. If somebody is serving the Lord, no matter what capacity, they have to be a person of good character, good reputation, filled with the Spirit, person who is wise. You don't want a dummy doing a, a, a ministry. Somebody doesn't care. Somebody that just not really doesn't have good common sense. And so, and notice the apostle said, and we'll appoint them. Leaders are appointed by leaders. That's why I have a real problem with congregational forms of government. Church government that is based on congregational form of government, to me, I'm not saying that they can't work and haven't worked. I don't think that's a biblical model, though. Because when you have a democratic church, in a sense, where the congregation votes on everything and the leaders just go along, we have the sheep leading the shepherd, first of all. It seems out of, out of place. But secondly, in any church, any church, evangelical church, typically, in general, you've got 10% that are the core, on fire, solid, 30% that are just getting mature, getting, you know, getting discipled and are growing and getting on fire, and 60% who are either unbelievers or new believers. So if you've got a congregational form of government, the least spiritual people are leading the church. And that's the problem with that. So the apostles said, look, we respect where you're coming from to the congregation. Choose out from yourselves men that you think would be good leaders, and then we'll appoint them. So the apostles had the last say. And we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Amen. Amen. If all pastors felt this way, that my main call was to be in the word of God and in prayer, and that's what they gave themselves to wholeheartedly, a lot of churches would be in a lot better shape than they are today. So that's the, that's the most important thing for a, an apostle, yes. And now, of course, that office is passed off the scene. Paul said that God has built his church on a foundation of apostles and prophets. But once the foundation was laid in the first century, they passed off the scene. Now pastors and teachers have taken over that role as far as teaching is concerned. But here, of course, we see the apostles as God was using them to lay the groundwork for the church. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Boy, the devil thought he was really going to use this. You know, conflict, oh, he loves it. Because he can use it to tear a church apart. A house divided against itself will not stand. And so often when conflict enters into a church, battle lines are drawn, people choose what side they're going to be on, and here they go to war. That's sad. Because if we use it properly, conflict can be beneficial. It shows us things that need to be changed. And if people have the right hearts and approach it as a family, as a body, and say, look, this, this is going on. This is not good. And we want God's will. We want God to be glorified. How can we make changes that will benefit the whole body and resolve this conflict? Well, the apostles used it. They said, look, we're not trying to do this. It's, we're just spread too thin. 
You choose from among yourselves seven men full of the Holy Spirit, good reputation and wisdom. These names, they're all Greek names. The Greek Jews thought their widows were being slighted. The apostles said to them, you choose from among yourselves seven men. We'll let you run this program just to show you that we're not trying to favor anybody. And so they chose seven Greek, Grecian, Hellenist Jews to run this ministry. Do you think Satan, what do you think Satan thought at that moment? Oh, man, they got me. I mean, because how do you diffuse the situation? You say, look, if you think you're being cheated, you're widows, then you guys take that ministry over. We're not trying to cheat anybody. We're just spread too thin. And they did, and the whole church said, wow. Boy, did that prove to the congregation that the apostles weren't trying to favor anybody. And so these men were raised up. The apostles prayed, and then they laid hands on them as a symbolic transfer of authority. The apostles were in charge. They laid hands on these men and signifying to the congregation that we recognize them. We are now authorizing them to be over this ministry. See? Now, I like the balance here. It's, it's biblical. When, whenever we feel that God's hand is upon a man to be a pastor at Calvary, it's usually after we have studied his life for a long time, have seen the qualities of a, of a shepherd. In other words, he is fulfilling that role. He has got a heart for the people of, of God. He is a servant. You see, he's there all the time, and he's you know, really doing his best to serve, and, and, and people are, uh, are drawn to his leadership. It's obvious that God's hand is upon him. We're not, we don't make pastors. We only recognize the pastors God has made. And that's all we're doing. We're looking for men that God is already showing us he's called to be pastors. But then what we do is we bring them to you. And we say, now look, we feel that this man has been raised up by God to be a shepherd here. But because you have to submit to his authority, we want to know if there's any reason you feel this person wouldn't make a good pastor. The, sh the congregation is not choosing who they want to be their pastors. They're just saying, yes, we can live with this person as my pastor or no I can't and if I can't here's why I can't and in all the years we've been ordaining pastors at Calvary I think we've only gotten one or two negative responses I mean it's always usually it's always unanimous because the body has seen this person for many years serving they've seen their heart and after we uh, the congregation comes back and says we this person would make a great pastor I have no trouble submitting this authority then we bring him up before you guys we lay hands on him and we now say now we are authorizing him to be a shepherd in this church and so that's uh but but here we see the office of deacon start paul talked about deacons in his letter to timothy first timothy chapter three and here's where we see the office start the word deacon comes from the greek word diakonos which means servant now we're all servants but there are some that god has called to be kind of um well, in, a, in a, an official capacity of, of a servant, in the sense that they're they're deacons, they're you know, and we, and we recognize them as deacons. What is the difference between an elder, which is a pastor, the apostles were elders, and a deacon? In Acts six, we kind of get the difference right here. Of course, Paul talks about it more in First Timothy three. But the difference between an elder and a deacon is an elder kind of um, takes care of the spiritual needs of the congregation, the teaching of the word, prayer ministry of the word counsel if there's any needed a deacon takes care of more of the physical needs of the church they're the ones that will set the chairs up they're there or oversee that ministry 
They oversee the nuts and bolts ministries that go on in a church that make it really able to function. You know, I mean, we have uh, a lot of things that, that, that have to go on on Sunday morning before we can have church. Chairs have to be set up. Sound equipment has to be brought in and set up. There's a lot of things. A lot of things have to happen on a physical level before church can take place. And deacons oversee that. Now, Pastor Mike functions as kind of a dual role as a, as a pastor, elder, and as a deacon, overseeing others who, who do the work. We have others who kind of uh, help uh, without the title of a deacon, but kind of oversee different ministries that require physical input to get things ready. So that's basically what they are, just in general. And verse 7 says, Then the word of God spread. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. It was estimated that at this point there were 8,000 priests in Israel. And now God was beginning to save many of them. So that was awesome to see that. A great number of priests getting saved. But notice, the conflict was dealt with quickly, in humility, and what happened? Again, the power of God was released. Because... Whenever there is unity, God is able to work powerfully. If there's divisions and schisms and fighting and things, how can God really work through that? And so Satan would love to divide us, to conquer us. But if we remain in unity and and realize, look, it's not about me. It's not about my ego. It's not about, am I being slighted? Am I being overlooked? Why do they get to be a small group leader and I don't you know I've been here longer and that kind of thing if we just say look God's glory is uppermost and I want the unity of the body and Paul said look agonize to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace do whatever bend over backwards to keep unity in the church and if there's a conflict let's deal with it you know praise the Lord that these Grecian Jews didn't murmur and complain among themselves They went right to the apostles. God blessed them for that. That's the way you deal with conflict. You don't talk about each other behind their backs. You go to them. Or you go to the leaders if you think the pastors are doing something wrong. And let's get it out in the open. And let's deal with it. Let's pray about it and see what we can do to work things through. They did the right thing. And the apostles did the right thing because they approached it with a humble heart. They said, look, yeah, we messed up. We admit it. We... We're just, it's just too much for us. So you take it over. If you think you're being cheated, please take over that ministry. Wow. That just diffused any conflict or you know, division. And allowed the power of God to move again in a mighty way as more and more people were getting saved. Now, out of these deacons, you know, it's interesting that there were 12 apostles. They, and they drew lots to pick the 12th one after Judas hung himself. And they picked... You know, Matthias, and whatever you think about Matthias, whether he was really the 12th or if God had Paul in mind, which I really think he did, and it wasn't Paul's time yet, but I think in God's mind, Paul was the 12th apostle. But we don't hear anything about 10 of them. We only really hear about Peter and Paul, pretty much. In Acts chapter 8, we, we, we see John again, but, but that's about it. But here, we, we, we read about two of these deacons. And their ministry was basically just to wait on tables, to pass out food once a week to the widows. And yet two of them are singled out, Stephen and then Philip. And for the next three chapters, the rest of chapter 6, 7, and 8, they're focused in on. 
That's amazing to me because it says to me something very important about ministry and about serving the Lord. It's not important how important your ministry is as you start off. It's only important how faithful you are. These two guys, I'm sure all seven were faithful, but Stephen and Philip were faithful in the little things. And God gave them greater things to do. Stephen was more than just a deacon. He's out there boldly witnessing, as we're going to see. He's out sharing the faith. He's out defending the faith. He's aggressively serving the Lord. And he winds up becoming the first church martyr, which was actually, if you think about it, a great honor. We wouldn't think of it that way necessarily, but it, it was. And God used it to move the church out of its comfort zone in Jerusalem because they had already filled Jerusalem with the doctrine of Christ. Jesus said, go into all the world and be witnesses for me, starting in Jerusalem. Well, they, they had done that. And then Judea. Well, they were not going into Judea and Samaria. Uh-uh. They were hanging in Jerusalem. And so God had to use Stephen's death to push them out of their comfort zone into Judea and Samaria as we're going to see starting in chapter 8. But then Philip comes along, and he's waiting on tables, but then God raises him up to be an evangelist. And I think sometimes we think that if we can't do something great for God right away, then why bother? I don't want to just set up chairs. I don't want to just work in a Sunday school. That's nothing. I want to do something great for God. And God says, look, I want to see your heart. Don't despise the day of small things. If you're faithful in the little things, God says, I'll give you greater things. But I'm convinced that if you just do whatever God's called you to do faithfully, you're going to be rewarded as, as anybody who is called to do, you know, maybe a very, very public ministry. As long as you're faithful, God will bless that. And so the story focuses on Stephen now. Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Now, I just have to stop here because there are many who teach that the miracles and the healings and those gifts were only given to the apostles to kind of authenticate and, and, um, and confirm their apostleship. But when they died, those gifts died out with them. In other words, they were only for the apostolic period, only to prove and to validate that these apostles were God's men and, and God was using them to, to lay the foundation, to write the New Testament. But when they died, those gifts died with them. But here we see a non-apostle, just an ordinary guy, a deacon, a guy who's waiting on tables. God has given him the power to do miracle. And it just says to me that, you know what? If Stephen was given power to do miracles and he wasn't an apostle, then why can't God still give power to do miracles and healings today? And I believe that those gifts are still in operation today. Maybe not like they were through the apostles because they had a special ministry. But I believe that those gifts are still around. Healings, miracles, as I said, tongues, prophecy. I believe God is still doing these things through his church. So Stephen was a man full of faith and power. He did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen. Now, this was a synagogue that um, started up in Jerusalem, probably made up of men that had been slaves, but had been set free. And they kind of gathered together 
uh, as a kind of a, a group that had a, that common past. And they, you know, synagogues would often grow up around certain, uh, you know, certain areas or certain uh, things like, like something like this, where you had a group of ex-slaves and now they were free. And so they, they joined together and called themselves the synagogue of the freedmen. A synagogue, by the way, was a place that got synagogue worship got started during the Babylonian captivity. You see, the Jews were away from their homeland, away from the temple. They, they had no temple to go to, no animal sacrifices to worship God. So what, what do we do? Well, let's get together and at least we can read the word of God. We can study it. We can sing God's praises. We can pray. And that's how synagogue worship began. And even after the Jews came back from Babylonian captivity, synagogue worship continued on. And so here you have a synagogue of the freedmen. Now, it was made up of different people from different areas. Um, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, these would have been from northern Africa. These, these were two large cities in northern Africa. Cyrene was the place that Simon came from, who carried Jesus' cross, uh, you know, as he was being crucified. Then you had uh, some folks from Cilicia and Asia. There were two places in Asia Minor. Okay, Cilicia, by the way, interestingly, uh, Tarsus was in the area of Cilicia. Tarsus is, of course, where Paul the Apostle came from. Actually, he wasn't Paul at this time. He was Saul of Tarsus. And it could very well be that this was the synagogue that Saul himself worshipped at. And that Stephen and him could have gotten into it in a debate. Because Saul was zealous for Judaism. And here's Stephen, you know, traveling around, going to synagogues, sharing the faith. Well, when he was stoned, at the end of chapter 7, Stephen gets stoned. Well, Paul was there holding the coats of those who went out and stoned Stephen. So he was, you know, could, could very well be that him and Stephen had got into it. And he agreed, this guy has got to go. But it's interesting how that, uh, as they disputed with Stephen, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Now, I personally don't think that Stephen was more educated, was smarter, or was a better debater than any of these guys. I think the key here was he was filled with the spirit. And God had given him the gift of the word of wisdom. What is that? Well, we know he was filled with wisdom. And it could be practical wisdom, no doubt, but also the gift of the word of wisdom. What is that? The gift of the word of wisdom is a gift that God gives to people, his people, from time to time in a given situation, whereby you're able to, there are things in the scriptures that God just reveals. It's almost like you just, you are reading the scriptures or you're teaching and suddenly this revelation comes, some insight that just God just gives you on the spot. It's not like Solomon, where you have a reservoir of wisdom you can draw from any time you want. It's just momentary wisdom for that situation, and usually it's in the form of interpreting the Word of God. I've experienced that gift uh, as I've been teaching. In fact, I remember one night in particular, I was teaching on a passage, and, um, and suddenly God gave to me an insight. And as, and as I brought it forth, I didn't say, hey, guys, listen to this. God just gave me this revelation. No, I just, in the course of teaching, I just, you know, it just came, I just brought it out. I said, God just gave it to me. And at the time, I thought, that's, that's really incredible insight. But I want to make sure it's not just, it was just, didn't come from me. So I then dug out some commentaries to see if I was on the right 
page with this. And sure enough, some other guys brought it out too, but I hadn't read that. It's just something God gave to me for that moment. And just an insight into the Word, you know. And, and so as Stephen was, was sharing Scripture, this Holy Spirit was giving him insights that these other people could not dispute. I mean, just things in the Old Testament that no doubt pointed to Jesus. And, and he was bringing all that out, and they're going, wow, we never saw that before. And, you know, and, and they just were dumbfounded. They couldn't, they couldn't even answer. So if you can't win the debate, you want to kill the, de- the debater, right? And so verse 11, when they, when they secretly induce men, then they secretly induce men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council, the Sanhedrin. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place, the temple, and the law. Boy, it almost sounds like exactly what they did to Jesus, right? In fact, that's really what's going on. And I'll tell you this, if people start treating you and persecuting you the way they did Jesus, you're on good ground there. You're on good, solid ground. Because Jesus said, look, woe unto you if they speak well of you. The world always speaks well of you. They did the false prophets. But if they persecute you and and slander you and so on, in my name, great is your reward. So Stephen is, uh, is just sharing the faith. And he's going to defend the faith not based on his own logic or experiences like some try to do but based on the word of God he's bringing insights out of the word that you know again God was giving him but he was defending the faith using scripture and that's important guys so often we try to defend the faith I, you know and I've seen programs and once in a while I'll catch a program and so years ago, somebody called me and said, hey, look, turn on Oprah because she's got some Christians on and, it, and, and it's like she's got some Christians and non-Christians and they're kind of debating. Well, I don't really watch Oprah, but I, I turned her, it on, you know. And, and so, you know, there was a couple of characters that were ripping Christianity apart and so Oprah was going into the audience, you know. And, and, and it, I, I tell you, it really grieved me to hear some of the, the defenses. Well, you have to believe in something so, you know, it's like, you know, so that's why I'm a Christian, because we have to believe in something. I thought, oh, that's really a powerful argument. <laughs> oh, man, that'll win them over big time. And I'm thinking, geez, don't say that. Defend the faith. You know, but it's obvious that a lot of people just have not taken the time to even think through their faith or even, you know, as Peter said, always be ready to give an answer, an apology. It doesn't mean to apologize like we think, but it was a defense, an apologia, a defense for your faith. Meekly, you know, humbly, but intelligently. Our faith is built on facts. We don't have to be in a corner cowering because, you know, the skeptics are against us and and, and we have nothing to really show for our faith to prove it. Of course we have. It's built on many infallible proofs, Peter said. But you have to know what they are to give an intelligent defense. And so Stephen gave an intelligent defense based on the facts of Scripture. Verse 14, For we have heard him say, Now this man, here's the accusation. This is the accusation in court. Verse 11, 
We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Verse 13, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place of the temple and the law. So that was the, that was the charge. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Well, that was the, the charge they brought against Jesus too. Jesus said, destroy this temple. In three days I'll raise it up. He wasn't speaking of the temple in Jerusalem. He was speaking of the temple of his body. But they assumed he was talking about the temple. And of course, Jesus said, I haven't come to destroy the law. I've come to fulfill the law. But they were so zealous for the law, they couldn't understand that the law was only given by God to show them how they could never be righteous by keeping the law because they couldn't keep it. I mean, let's face it. To be to get into heaven by the law, we have to keep the law perfectly our whole life. James said if we violate the law in one small part, we're, we're, we're lawbreakers. In other words, and I've used this illustration before, but, you know, if a person lives a pretty law-abiding life, their whole life, but then at one point breaks the law in one small area and goes before the judge and uses this as the defense. Well, Your Honor, I realize that, you know, stealing that, you know, that sweater from the store was wrong. But you have to realize, I have been a law-abiding citizen all my life. I've never done anything wrong. I've never violated the law up until this point. So you should let me go based on the fact that I've kept the law all my life except for this one time. And the judge is going to say, you got to be kidding me. That's no defense. You don't get any points for keeping the law. You're supposed to keep the law. But if you break the law, you have to pay. And the same is true in our life. I mean, you want to get to heaven by keeping the law, being good, you've got to be perfect. Now, who's perfect? Nobody. That's why the law can never get us to heaven. It could only show us how weak we are, how sinful we are. The law is a mirror that we look into and go, I have violated everything God has said in the law. I can't even hope to get to heaven by the law because I've broken it. Every day I break it. And that's where Jesus comes in, who fulfilled the law and said, look, if you want to get to heaven, believe on me. That's righteousness by faith. We thank God for that. But some of these Jews, you think they would have been excited to say, look, Jesus, you're our Messiah. You've, you've come to fulfill the law so that I don't have to try anymore because I've broken it all my life, but you fulfilled it, and all i got to do is believe in you to get to heaven? You think they would have embraced that? What did they do when Jesus died on the cross? Said, it is finished bowed his head, dismissed the spirit, and at that very instant, the curtain of the, of the temple that separated the holy place from the most holy place, the most holy place is where God was said to dwell over the Ark of the Covenant, and that curtain is a wall that separated God and man because sin separated God and man. But when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, said it is finished, paid in full, at that instant God tore the curtain of the temple from top to bottom, signifying, hey, open house. You can come to me now boldly because my son has paid for your sins. He fulfilled the law. Come to me now. What do the Jews do? They sewed it back up. Isn't that sad? When I was in Israel this last time, we went through what was called the rabbi's tunnel. It's a tunnel that leads underground along the foundation wall of where the temple once stood, or the Temple Mount, okay? And this 
passageway runs along the, it was at one time a retaining wall for the temple mount. And as we are, you, you walk through this thing, there are little areas where it opens up a little bit, and sometimes Jews will gather for prayer. And we passed by a group of young Jewish girls who were praying. And I looked into the face of this one young Jewish gal. She must have been maybe 15 or 16. And she had her prayer shawl on. And her little face was so sincere and so passionate to pray and to, and to do what she needed to do to earn God's favor. And I thought, how sad, Lord. Open her eyes. Because she doesn't have to earn your favor. You give it freely through your son. And she thinks, of course, like all the Orthodox Jews, you have to keep the rituals. Pray so many times a day. Do these works. Do these rituals. And you earn God's favor. And it's sad because Jesus did it all. It's finished. You want to come to God, you come through me. But how sad when people say, no, my religion is too important. I won't give up my good works. I've worked hard on these good works. And I will continue to work my way into heaven because I'm a good person. And I'm <laughs> the only thing I have over sinners is that I've, I go to church and I do these rituals and so on and so forth. And there's a lot of people that will not let go of their traditions and all the man-made works that they're offering God to make them righteous. It's not going to happen, though. The Bible is very clear about that. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by his mercy he has saved us through the blood of Christ. And I'm so thankful for that. So he, they drag him into court, and they said, Look, verse 15, are these things true? And, they, and all, all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. And I just imagine that his face was just almost radiating because Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit, which meant he was a man full of Jesus. The presence of Jesus so filled Stephen's life. He was so committed to serving his Lord, standing up for truth, no matter what it cost him. He was so close to heaven that heaven almost was stamped on his face, his countenance. I have seen people who have gotten saved and literally, honestly, their whole countenance changed to the point where I almost didn't recognize them. Because it was like God had almost transformed their facial features. And it's just amazing. It really is. So Stephen, who was being railroaded, didn't get all angry and all bitter and start railing in court. His face just radiated like an angel. And, the, and then the high priest said, are these things so? Now, Stephen's going to give his, not really a defense, He's not trying to defend himself. In fact, before the chapter is out, the accused is going to become the accuser. And that's what's going to cause them to kill him. Because he's right. And he lets them know it. He is not trying to destroy what God is doing. He's trying to keep them from perverting and destroying what Jesus has done. So he's wanting to get the truth out. These men who supposedly represent God, but are way off. People can represent God who are way off. It's sad to me when people put so much faith in their spiritual leaders. When Jesus said very clearly, the blind 
lead the blind so many times. He was talking about the Pharisees, spiritual leaders who did not know God, but everybody looked to, you know, to follow them to find God. Sad. Very sad. So Stephen is going to give a little brief history lesson to kind of set things up to bring him where he wants to be in this presentation. Let me just stop for a second and uh, say this, though. Sometimes people ask me, uh, what's a good commentary on the Bible? You know what I tell them many times? The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. There's a basic rule of hermeneutics, which is the science of Bible interpretation. Use Scripture to interpret Scripture whenever possible. Chapter 7 is such a blessing for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is Stephen, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, brings things out that we, you know, we don't get from the Old Testament. He is actually expounding on things that happened in the Old Testament, but he's giving us insights that we don't get from the Old Testament. So the New Testament is actually interpreting and expanding on and enlightening us with regard to the Old Testament. I think it was Augustine who first of all said, in the Old Testament you have the New Testament concealed, and in the New Testament you have the Old Testament revealed. It's the Word of God, and it's, it's, it's all one unfolding story. Judaism is the root, Christianity is the fruit. But that's why we talk about Judeo-Christianity. You, you can't separate the two any more than you can separate the root from the fruit and vice versa. It's all one unfolding story. It's not the Old Testament, per se. It's the Older Testament, which gave rise to the fulfillment, which we call the New Testament, the New Covenant. So Stephen is going to give us some things that we don't get. And I'll, and I'll point these out right off the bat. He said, brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. Let me stop there. God, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. Of course, back then he was called what? Abram. I don't know if he purposely meant to do this, or I mean, obviously he had to start with Abraham, but do you know that the father of the Jewish people, the one they revere probably more than anybody else, Father Abraham, do you know that Father Abraham started off his life as an idol-worshiping Gentile? Abram was an idol-worshipping Gentile from a place which is located between the Tigris and the Euphrates River in modern-day Iraq, what we call the Cradle of Civilization because that's where the Garden of Eden was, somewhere in that area. And that's where the Chaldeans lived, or the Babylonians, same people. Mo, uh, Abraham was from there. He was from the Ur of the Chaldees. Ur was a city in Mesopotamia. To the north of Ur, you had Haran. Now, Abram started off as an idol-worshipping Gentile. God appears to him one day. Here's what he said. Verse 3, And God said, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. <laughs> well, some, some interesting things here that we don't get from Genesis. First of all, if you go back to Genesis 12, or actually it's Genesis 11, I think it's verse 27, through Genesis 12, verse 5, you read this little story. 
If you were to go back to Genesis and read this story, it would sound to you like God appeared to Abram while he lived in Haran with his father, Terah, and his family, his wife and possessions and servants. Abram was very wealthy. And God appeared to him there while he lived in Haran and said, I want you to leave this place, your family, your possessions, and I want you to go to a land that I will show you. And so Abraham, even in Genesis 12, doesn't fully obey. God said, leave your family, leave your possessions. He took his wife, he took his servants, he took his father, he took his possessions, and then he came to the land of Canaan. And by the way, when he crossed over the Euphrates River, he became a Hebrew, because that's what the word Hebrew means, to cross over. So when he separated himself from the Ur of the Chaldees, from the center of occult worship, that's what it was, when he separated himself from the world to follow God to the place where God was leading him, the land of Canaan, the land of promise, when he crossed over the Euphrates River, this idol-worshiping Gentile became the first Hebrew, the father of the Hebrew people. That's where the Jewish people started. I'm sure they didn't like that pointed out, that their father that they revered so much at one time himself was an idol-worshiping Gentile. But you know what Stephen shows us that we don't get from Genesis? We call Abraham the father of faith, the great example of faith. Well, he wound up being a wonderful example of faith, but he didn't start out that way. Because Stephen tells us that before he dwelt in Haran, while he still lived in Mesopotamia, God spoke to him and said, leave your possessions and your family and follow me to a place where I will show you and I will give it to you and your descendants forever. So what does Abraham do? Abram at this time, he takes his father, his family, his possessions and servants, and moves from Mesopotamia upriver about, oh, I don't know how many miles, to Haran and camps there. He wasn't obedient to God. He didn't follow God. God said, leave everything. leave your, Separate yourself and follow me. Abraham took everybody and went upstream a little bit. And there he lived for another 25 years until his father Terah died. And then God said to him, now, are you ready, basically? Are you ready to do what I've told you to do, Abraham? I told you to separate yourself from everyone and follow me. And he, that's where we pick it up in Genesis 12. But even then he takes everybody with him and moves to Canaan with everybody with him. So Ab the point I'm making is that people of great faith don't start out that way. It takes time for God to work in his servants. Of course, the longer we take, the more time we waste in doing what God wants to do in our lives. Abram, you know, he wasted 25 years when he should have followed God right away, crossed over the Euphrates onto Canaan. But we all do that. God says, look, I want you to separate yourself from this, this job, this place, this whatever. Follow me until I'm going to bring you and open up some new opportunities and we drag our feet. Well, God, I've got to just take care of this first. Or I've got to do this, this last, you know, I've got to start up this one last branch thing, you know, or make this close this last deal or whatever it might be. And we waste a lot of time. We should be just following the Lord. But Abram learned. And over the years, his faith in God grew until finally we see a climax in Genesis chapter 22 when God said to Abraham, Take your son, your only son, the one that he waited 25 years 
to be born. When God gave him a promise, he would have children. So many that they wouldn't be able to be numbered. He waits 25 years and finally Isaac is born. And then after a few years, God says, now take him and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. Now what did Abraham do? He gets up early the next morning and loads up the donkeys with Isaac and goes exactly where God said. He had learned that, look, I trust God. God has promised me through my son Isaac I would have so many descendants they wouldn't even be able to be numbered. Isaac has no children. If God wants me to kill him, he's going to have to raise him from the dead. So if that's what you want me to do, Lord, I'll do it. But you're going to have a problem on your hands because you promised me through this son I was going to have a lot of descent, a lot of grandkids and great-grandkids and so on. So if you want me to kill him, I'll do that. But you're going to have to raise him from the dead. See, Abraham's faith by this time had grown strong. And so the same is true with us guys. Let God build your faith. I'm not, you know, God never asks us to run before we learn to crawl, spiritually speaking, you know. But if you never take the first, you know, if you never let God grow your faith at all, even in the little things, it will never grow for greater things. So Abraham, yes, he wound up being a great example of faith, but he didn't start out that way, all right? And I think we're all growing, but um, sometimes very slowly, though. I know I am. Um, in verse 5, And God gave him no inheritance in it. Now he's come to Canaan. And God said to Abram, Everywhere your footsteps, you walk, throughout the entire land, Abram. Just walk all over the place. Everywhere your footsteps, I have given it to you as a, as a possession. Although, Abraham lived his whole life on promises and never did see any possession. I mean, the land of Canaan was given to him by God in promise. But he didn't see the inheritance. He died before they actually inherited the land. But he trusted God. I'd like to live your whole life just on promises and never see any of the fulfillment. In a sense, that's where we're all coming from. We've been promised a heavenly home, an inheritance that will never fade away and we'll never see it in this life unless we're raptured. It's something that we have to die before we actually ever see it. But we have faith because God has put that in our hearts. And so God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and his descendants after him. The land of Canaan, that's what the Abrahamic covenant was all about. When people say that the Jews stole that land from the Palestinians, I cringe. That is not the Palestinians' land. First of all, Palestinians is just a name that was given to the people that lived in Israel by the Romans, who, who were sick and tired of the Jews rebelling. And so in 130 AD, they destroyed the city of Jerusalem, and the Jews were dispersed, and they, re, they renamed that place Syria-Palestina. Everybody living there, Jew or Arab, was now Palestinians. I mean, this, we, we see this throughout history. We see that during the First World War, there was a, uh, a Palestinian brigade that fought for the British, made up of all Jewish soldiers. The Palestinian orchestra was all Jewish orchestra. The Palestinian Post, an all Jewish newspaper. Palestinian was just a name given to the area. 
uh, to those who lived in the area, whether they be Jew or Arabs. But through propaganda and Arafat and all this stuff, he got people to believe that this land was the Palestinians' land and the Jews came and occupied it and stole it from them. But the Abrahamic covenant that God made with Abraham gave them this land as a possession forever. And so it's their land. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them for 400 years. Now, of course, Stephen is talking about the fact that eventually God's people would go down to Egypt where they would eventually become slaves. He says 400 years was actually 430, but he's using round numbers. He's just trying to give them a quick sketch of their history. And the nation to whom they would be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place, in the land of Israel. He's talking about, of course, Moses being raised up as a deliverer. It's very important to Stephen to sketch out their history because he wants to focus in on two people in particular, Joseph and Moses. Both of them were deliverers. Both of them were not recognized as deliverers by God's people until the second time. Remember? It wasn't until the second time uh, Joseph's brothers came down to Egypt that they recognized him. It wasn't until the second time God raised up Moses to be a deliverer. The first time he killed the Egyptian that was fighting against the Hebrew. And the people didn't receive him as a deliverer then. It wasn't until 40 years later God raised him up to be a deliverer and then they recognized. What is the point? The point is you folks have got a real track record not recognizing the deliverers that God sends you until the second time. Jesus is coming again. The second time you will recognize him. We know that from Zechariah. But like you didn't recognize Joseph as the deliverer God sent when the famine was plaguing the land. And you didn't recognize Moses until the second time. The same is true with your Savior. And that's the, the basis of this indictment. Uh, verse 8. Then he gave him a covenant of circumcision. Still talking about Abraham. And so Abraham begot Isaac, and, Isaac and, um, and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. 